Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Alex Walker, who is an epidemiologist at the Data Lab within the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. And the paper is Clinical Coding of Long COVID in English Primary Care, a federated analysis of 58 million patient records in situ using OPENS safely. So obviously long COVID is attracting a lot of interest. And this paper looked in a little bit more detail at how exactly it was being coded from the um, from the you know, from near the start of the pandemic when long COVID first became apparent. But I started by asking Alex to tell us a little bit more about the Open Safely platform so we can understand that. We started building the Open Safely platform in March 2020, uh, so at the beginning, the beginning of the pandemic. And the point of the Open Safely platform was to try and deliver rapid analytics, very large scale, to try and answer questions about the COVID uh, pandemic. The platform itself consists of uh, primary care data. We've got primary care data for 58 million uh, people in England. And then it's also linked to some other data sets. So we've got hospital data. So whenever anyone's admitted to hospital, uh, we, can, we can see that. And then some other data sets like COVID testing data. So we can see when people get positive tests and uh, death certificate data. So we can see the, the timing and, and reasons for, for people who've died. And then a, f- a few other uh, small data sets as well. Yeah, so it's a remarkable platform, this kind of open source data analytics platform. And um, I think we should we should say it's based in England only. I think that's correct, isn't it? It's, it's for England rather than any, any other countries of the United Kingdom. And um, it covers the two largest electronic healthcare record systems. So most GPs will know these, which is EMIS and uh, TPP or System 1. And that's something like 96% of the English population, isn't it? So you've got incredible coverage with this. And as you mentioned there, 58 million, the scale's really quite impressive. One of the features of Open Safely is that because we've got such unprecedented access to, to so many records, uh, we wanted to try and make it as secure as possible when when researchers are, are using the data. So the, the, the way we've done this is researchers never actually see the data itself. Um, that's all held on secure servers within the infrastructure of the um, of TPP and EMIS who who hold the data anyway. And what happens is um, a researcher will write code. So we've got software that will allow them to generate dummy data, which is just completely randomly generated data, and that will allow them to write analytic code, which will then um, which they can test using the dummy data, and then that code gets pushed to the secure environment where it runs on the real data, then outputs um, sort of summary data, so the data that you would see in an academic paper or, or, or another kind of report, and, and, that, and then it's only that sort of summary data that actually gets released. And I think that's clearly really important with the current climate in and around kind of research data and primary care research data in particular and how, how that's accessed. So it's an important point. And there's going to be, I think, I think it's worth us having paused on that to talk a little bit about it because there's going to be quite a lot of, we've got other papers coming through um, certainly at least one other with on the Open Safely platform at the BJGP. There may well be more in the future with updates as well. And you've clearly got a lot of other papers, a lot of different other areas you're looking at too in all sorts of different fields, no doubt. So today's really about long COVID though. So perhaps you could tell us just very briefly what you did with this one and then, then let's get on to what you found. Yeah, so um, we at the Data Lab in Oxford are part of a, a collaborative group which involves several different universities that, that collaboration is, is called 
uh, longitudinal health and well-being. The, the point of that collaboration is to look at what happens to people after they get COVID and what, what the sort of medium and long-term consequences of are of, of having COVID. Start of this project, we point was to sort of take an early look at how people were being diagnosed with long COVID in, in primary care. So the, the sort of background to this is that, that long COVID obviously only emerged as as a thing in the middle of 2020 when when obviously people people started reporting that they they had sort of persistent symptoms of of COVID over over a long longer period than than you would normally expect. So in response to that, there were some diagnostic codes created that sort of described long COVID. So there's there's two different diagnostic codes, and then there's there's a few different referral codes, uh, and then there's there's also a, a few um, assessment codes. Um, so the idea with this project was to take a broad look at all of these different codes and see how they've been used in in the sort of months since they were introduced. As we know that, you know, we can't do anything in terms of working out how people are getting on unless we are coding the data and the comp- in terms of going back and looking later on. So the coding is really important and it's that old maxim that coding is caring as lots of people would like to put forward. There aren't an awful lot of codes. So say, you'd say there's only two diagnostic codes, three referral codes, and then what is it, like eight, nine, ten assessment codes so not a great deal of number of codes so the question is how many they were, we were using of these and actually how, how much is general practice using how much is general practice using these codes so what did you find we found broadly that there weren't a huge number that there wasn't a, a very widespread use of the codes so we found that uh, only twenty three thousand people in the original paper we reported only twenty three thousand people who'd been coded with with one of these codes which if you sort of compare it with other estimates of how many people might have long COVID from, from sort of longitudinal cohort data, there's a couple of different estimates of sort of maybe one or two million people might might have long COVID. So, so compared to that, it's a lot less, but you'd also expect it to be a lot less in some ways because there are obviously additional barriers to being coded with long COVID because you've got to think that it's serious enough to go to the GP and the GP's got to know about the codes, and and obviously that a lot of the the codes were only brought into existence in late 2020. So there's a big time period where it wasn't even possible to code somebody with with having long COVID. In summary, the the numbers are very low, aren't they? They're clearly much much lower than people that we expect to have long COVID. But as you say, there are, and you just you certainly cover this in the discussion. There are lots of factors we need to consider that. The first time someone presents with some symptoms, you don't necessarily bang them straight on with a with the code onto the computer system. And, and GPs are very mindful of that once a code goes onto the system, it can be you know a diagnosis. You want to be secure in that diagnosis, and you need to be aware, you're aware of the long term consequences of a code going onto the system like that as well. So one yeah. imagines that a lot of these will have been coded symptomatically, at least initially, um, whether that was fatigue or other symptoms of long COVID that people may still have been having. Still, that doesn't change the fact that actually it's very hard to know what's going on if, it, if the coding's not there. You, you've done, you've, this was, um, you, you've run an update on just at the beginning of September on the data on this, and what did you find there? We, we built a, a website called reports.opensafely.org, uh, which anyone can, can go and look at. Um, and on there, we've we've got several different reports, and, and one of them is an updated version of, of the BJGP paper that we wrote. The, the sort of headline figure from, from that is that there are now fifty seven thousand people who've who've uh, been coded with a 
on COVID code. But in terms of the sort of rate that people are being coded over time, it's, it's not changed very dramatically. It's, it's sort of relatively similar to, to, to how it was. So definitely something for GPs to think about whether we should be coding. And um, it's something for researchers to be thinking about as well. And as you mentioned in the discussion, um, perhaps we need to be also looking at other ways of estimating and finding these people in in the system, in the computer records and in the electronic health records and making sure. Any other main message you think come through from this paper? One thing that we thought was very important was this, the sort of variability in the rate of recording uh, amongst different GPs. So so there were some GPs that had used sort of quite a few, used the code in, in quite a few patients, but then there are some other GPs. In the original paper, I think it was about 25% of GPs had just haven't haven't used the code at all. We're not exactly sure why that might be. Then there was also a very interesting difference between EMIS practices and TPP practices, where we found that the rate of recording in EMIS practices was more than double of that in TPP practices. Yeah, but I'm not experienced system one for a little while now, and EMIS is what I'm used to. So it may just be the way that you find the codes and what you type in, how it appears, and what's get what's get what gets offered as a possible that sometimes just pops up as you're typing so there may be some differences in the functionality of the system that's making it more likely rather than anything else yeah yeah we we suspect it's, it's something like that um so, so we we work quite closely with both tpp and emis through um developing open safely uh and we've had we've, we've had conversations with with both of them and to sort of try and get to the bottom of it a bit and to, to see if there's anything they can do to to sort of make the codes um, easier to, to to find and use. Alex, listen, these are tremendously important findings, really interesting, an astonishing data set that you're using and incredibly valuable. There's obviously an awful lot of work to do on long COVID in the future and it's going to keep a lot of, um, it's going to keep us all very busy in all aspects of primary care and research for quite a long time yet. And um, this has been incredibly valuable. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thanks again.